Hello, everyone. Welcome to From Nowhere to Nothing, Ontological Oxymorons. I'm your host, Joel Bouchard, a graduate student in education. And with me is Mr. Norman Gayford, a professor of English and philosophy. Longtime listeners know that this philosophy show isn't all dusty books and marble busts of bearded dead guys. In fact, more often than not, we draw on things that are personally and culturally relevant in order to give concrete substance to some of the more abstract concepts we address here. Some examples are more elegant and exemplary than others, but we're here to show that you can talk about anything philosophically. Today, we'll use all the tools in our philosophy toolbox, including knowledge of ethics, identity, nature, aesthetics, and more. The topic? A sci-fi TV serial based on spaghetti westerns. We're talking about The Mandalorian. So, last week, we, uh, we did a lot of discussing about 2001 a space odyssey and we kind of brought up in the episode that it would be cool to examine an actual art art form you know whatever that may be whether it's a, a movie or a tv show or music or you know anything you can a painting you can look at the whole school of aesthetics is about looking at different types of art and philosophically so uh it, this was your suggestion this week was to talk about uh, the Mandalorian. So this is definitely something that is culturally relevant at the time. Do you want to start by uh, postulating on why it's such a cultural phenomenon? I will, but uh, but I also will preface all of this as you and I talked about before we started recording that my experience of the Mandalorian has been slow and is accelerating. So I have a fairly narrow, no, a completely narrow uh, list of episodes. I, you know, I, I'm up through I finished episode five. So I'm barely started in a, in a real sense. And so the things that I say are, are partly based on that and then partly based on things that I've read regarding the show, and I am going to keep watching because I've been quite enjoying it. So why is it becoming, or has it become, a cultural phenomenon? I think first, on one up, uh, a level that's not shallow but probably clearer, is that it harkens back to the Western format, although it has some interesting revisions on that format as a way of storytelling. The, the loner who walks in to impossible odds and tries to do something about it or the loner who because of a choice that he's made has put himself in a situation with impossible odds and probably wonders himself sometimes why he's doing it and so it it it's it appeals because it's simplistic in the sense of its storytelling it's almost pristine in its storytelling uh, even to the the labeling of episodes, which which we can get back to. There's a clean, simple storytelling focus to it. And you think you know who the villains are, and obviously that's it's a George Lucas Lucasian kind of scenario, so it's not hard to know who some of the villains are. And but you don't all you don't know everything about the characters at all. And so I, I think that that it's it 
there's uh, there are elements of stoicism as, as stoicism as we talked about there are other philosophical elements that are embedded in this that don't just happen to walk in and out and i think that's what makes it a little appealing too yeah so we'll look at it um at the macro level and then we'll kind of work down some of the other stuff but i think that's a good place to start is um a good first question to ask would be do you think or what? How do you think that the show would be different if it was under George Lucas's creative control as opposed to Disney's? I think it would be messier. I think it would be less structurally intact. I know it sounds like I don't much care for George Lucas's way of storytelling, but but he started out with the mythological approach, and then I. To me, he, he strayed away, and a lot of other people had to pull it back to that. So I think Disney has, because it's corporate, because it's a franchise, all of those capitalistic things, it's also in Disney's best interest to keep the story in, um, intact and simple and, and done in such a way that it may even be uh, accessible by lots of kids, probably is. I don't know who all the readers, the viewership is, but given Disney, that's that's sort of built in. So they so there are rules, <laughs> right? Yeah, I think that that's probably a good analysis. It's definitely more cohesive than it would be. And you know, honestly, I don't know if George Lucas would have made a show like this because I Star Wars is largely, um, you know, it's very uh, there's good and evil, kind of, and and the Mandalorian is like you said. You're not always sure who the villains are and who and who's you know and I I saw a funny meme the other day that said uh, the Mandalorian is really a story about a guy who travels the universe making new best friends <laughs> <laughs> and when you you think about it that way it, it kind of is and I think that that's some Disney influence right you, and that's probably what what a big separation between it and some of the spaghetti westerns that it's influenced by would be. Is in the spaghetti westerns, uh, you have a lot of um, characters who are loners. If you think about it, the Mandalorian really isn't a loner at any point, <laughs> except <laughs> maybe the first half of the first episode. Uh, right. You know, he starts out by himself, but like rather than being somebody that's you know uh, completely on his own, he's he's always interacting with new people, and and lots of times uh, the template that the show sort of fo- sort of follows is he he enters in. Um, he's contracted to do a, to do a job against the bad guys. And then he finds out that the bad guys are the good guys and he becomes friends with them. They team up and they do these things. So he actually, uh, there's a lot of teamwork and there's a lot of, um, dynamic relationships that you don't see in, in some of the spaghetti Westerns. And you also, um, didn't really see in George Lucas's original movies. Um, you had the good guys and the bad guys, um, from the beginning. And even if you had a, a morally questionable character like a Han Solo or somebody, it was still pretty evident that he was the good guy um, at any given point. Whereas yes. with the Mandalorian, you definitely have some people that are starting out as the bad guys and then they sort of morph depending on the context or the relationship exchange, that sort of thing. So just sort of an interesting thing to think about. Well, what would it be like if it was under the creative control of the guy who um, inspired the, the universe? And some yeah, I think, I think you are right. I, 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 I don't think Lucas would have made this story. Yeah, I don't think so either. 
And I think that when you come back to it, um, the Mandalorian is inspired by Boba Fett. Um, <laughs> and that's, that's another whole conversation, right? So you had Boba Fett, kind of this character that was thrown in as an afterthought in the original Star Wars trilogies. He had, you know, two lines and he got, he got killed almost immediately. And yet, <laughs> gloriously. <laughs> yeah. But, but people loved this character, right? And I, I was one of them way back in the day. I, you know, when I was a 10 or 11 year old kid, this is a story of a very young nerd. I built a whole set of armor out of poster board and, and stuff, you know, the whole works, right? Why? What, what was so inspirational about this Boba Fett character, do you think, that was, that all these years later, you know, you're looking at 40 years later, has inspired the most successful TV show of, you know, our current era? I I really need Ian back on this because, like you, he is is completely up to speed. Uh, Mandalorian watches the Mandalorian um, religiously. I, I but I think back to all the Star Wars experiences that I had of those first three films, uh, which he often says he envies that I was there and actually saw these when they were. Well, you know, it was fun, uh, but I I sort of cheered when Boba Fett got swallowed up by the, <laughs> you know, he, he was not a character that, as you say, he comes in, he's one of the, he's one of the bounty hunters. And, and he, to me, he was a toss away. He says, Oh, well, Boba Fett. He says, well, yeah. And he can be uh, rather easily undone and, and tossed to a monster, I guess in Canon or in books or, or in animations. I, I don't know. My understanding is that, Boba Fett made it back out of the Sarlacc, but <laughs> that's not really the question. The question is what what drew him, and I have to think that it's the mask. That's a really cool mask. He's got rocket pack. What kid doesn't want a rocket pack? He, he's got weapons that he can fire when he raises up on that. Uh, you know, I I really think it's to me it's all of that uh, accoutrement equipment, uh, right? And character and you 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 have to be right there's really no other answer because he has no lines there is no personality to the character the original character right there's nothing there um but yeah and so he i think that yeah that the mask but more what the mask stands for is it's this kind it's mystery right and lucas i think the the magic of a lot of george lucas's storytelling is implying things, implying a bigger universe. You know, I, I think about when Obi-Wan's talking to Luke and he just casually talks, oh, your father fought in the Clone Wars. And you're like, what are the Clone Wars? Uh, Same yeah, thing with yeah. Boba Fett. He's talking with Darth Vader. And Darth Vader says, this time, no disintegrations. And you're like, whoa, who did he disintegrate? Like, that's pretty cool, you know? <laughs> so Boba Fett, there's that mystery, right? Okay, who's he disintegrating? Or, you know, um, is, you know, where who is this guy? What's, what's behind the mask or wow. Of all those bounty hunters that were lined up, he was the one guy that was able to capture Han Solo. Why I was, you know, how was he able to do it? Never, nobody else was, you know, like it, he raises a lot of questions. And I think that that's what makes him an interesting character to a lot of people. Yeah. I, and, I think so too. And if you look at, you know, that's, that's kind of what our whole, that's what philosophy is about to me, right. Is, 
raising a lot of questions that you can't answer, right? That so I it's, some of that appeal is the same. <laughs> yeah, and it does. It it is the same, and it and it and it does. I think do a different take on the masked vigilante trope. Uh, and so, you, yeah, Lucas created all this stuff, and let, let's just let, let's offer something that is, I know it's not exactly true, but suppose it was just Lucas told his his set designers and costume makers and so on, go nuts and and, and make these things. Well, he's got all these visuals that you can then take and tell stories from them. That's a good thing. Uh, any character... Any character can have more, will have more background if that character is dwelt upon. Or if the character just crosses the screen, there's got to be more to that character somewhere, somehow. And then so a show like this uh, dives into that. But I'm thinking, you know, what, what superhero story do we know? It's not like he's a superhero, but what, where you, for the first number of episodes, you don't see his face. You see his... So suppose you had the Batman cowl. The, the, the episode I watched, <clears throat> I think it was Sanctuary. The Sanctuary, where he's on the planet where there's people, farmers. <laughs> you know, it's the, it's the farmers needing you know, the Magnificent Seven, only they get the Magnificent Two. Uh, but, but he's explaining about when the last time was he took off his mask in front of somebody, and that's when he was a kid. And we know that he's an orphan, so we've got that whole story going on that, that does with so many heroes. Uh, he's not, oh, he's a hero. He's sometimes an anti-hero, it seems to me. But nonetheless, it's interesting. So you see the outside world, outside of his window, in this place that he's staying, with his arms and his drink, and you see what's going on through the window, and I think you see the helmet next to him, but you don't see him. And I think that that's very interesting. It's it's an intriguing uh, attempt to let him be an every man character in a fresh way. Yeah, you see a lot of that later. I know you haven't seen some of these episodes, and I'll just let everybody know. Norm has given me permission to to spoil stuff for him. Spoil away. Um, <laughs> but that that's something that he really fights with in the second season. Is um, he has to make some tough decisions between. Um, you know, furthering this cause that he started and maintaining that sort of, um, uh, you know, mystique, you know, leaving the helmet on and, uh, how, you know, how he, he wrestles with him and when he decides to do things he does is, is sort of interesting. Um, well, and it's not just notes. a mystique, is it? It's, it's a code, right? Yeah. It, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, a couple other side notes, let you know, that our episode on villains has surpassed our episode on heroes in terms of listens. So he's, he's not, he's not a weirdo. People are more interested in villains than they are in heroes. I will. Um, and also like we were just talking about at the beginning of the episode, um, you wouldn't be aware of this is the, at the end of episode or season two, but um, Boba Fett does survive the Sarlacc in the Mandalorian. And now he's going to have his own TV show. Oh. So, yeah, so the influence continues, right? I think that they're they're getting back to, and they they do a good job. Boba Fett and the Mandalorian interact in the second season some, and they they're separating them as characters, right? Because I think that was the original, the sort of the fear of it was okay. Well, it's influenced by this. It's just going to be a, a show about Boba Fett, 
but with uh, some stock character. And it's really not. You know, the Mandalorian is is starting to show that he is a different character from Boba Fett, and they're different people with different personalities. And uh, you know, they the 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 set designers do a good job of doing that, even in that first season when you see the Mandalorian, uh, the group of them. And you know, so well, they all kind of have different armor, and they all sort of have different personalities i don't it wasn't that way in lucas's star wars um no. you know the mandalorians were were very uniform and as a matter of fact they were sort of templates for stormtroopers you know so um yeah, there's something different the <laughs> yeah so the show is really going out of its way to develop um a unique uh aspect to mandalorians that didn't exist early on um what do, you th- what do you think the setting of The Mandalorian tells us about the Star Wars universe? This is supposed to be five years after the the original, or the uh, the last movie. What do you think it's, what do you think it's saying? Well, is it, it's five years after the last movie of the first trilogy, right? Right, yeah, yeah. Right. Well, see, this is where I think the, the doorway opens to all kinds of ethical relativism. It, you, I, I thought this often watching the Star Wars movies, but it becomes particularly pointed because we slow down and look at different, not cultures, it's not that compositionally complex, but, but we, we see more of these individual small, the small people, as they say in the Game of Thrones. The everyday is that you hardly ever see. We have a requisite bar scene once in a while with all the other aliens. wonder what all these other aliens are doing there, especially on a planet that's essentially a backwater. But that's a different question. <laughs> the, the, the thing that, you, that I think is this, is, this is a culture that has been so, well, it's not a culture. It's, this is a set of cultures that are so savage uh, that that seemed not all that different under the Republic than they did under the Empire, but certainly were more ruinously uh, done in because of the Empire. But ultimately, almost every place that we see, barring Coruscant in the movies, which itself was a nightmare world, with, with all that traffic everywhere, and, and there's, it's just a paved world. That's, a, that's not a, a grand utopian vision. It's a dystopian universe. The galaxy far, far away is not one in which I would particularly want to live. And every time we go to a planet, every place that we go so far in The Mandalorian is consistent with that vision that we had in the movies, which is of wastelands of one kind or another with people barely being able to piece together a life economically. It's it's capitalism at its worst it is capitalism that has run amok and devastated people. And then it was capitalism somehow under an imperial format, but the same thing happened. So you've got people trying to scrape along and live hand to mouth. And and we're not talking about one planet. We're talking about essentially every planet. So to me, it's a very grim, nightmarish, unpleasant universe in which to live. Yeah, and that's that's really interesting because that's a lot of political complexity for something like Star Wars, but it's sort of always existed, right? I think that yeah, the original the original trilogy all the way up through now 
it's like you said, the, the distinct impression that you get is that it doesn't matter who's running the galaxy on, you know, in these places. And that's where all of the stories are taking place are in these places, other than, you know, some of the, the prequel trilogy stuff, like you said, at, at the core of, of the galaxy at Coruscant stuff. Um, but the majority of the stories, the characters, um, what things are taking place are in places where this grand um, war that's happening between the rebellion and, and the empire doesn't really make much difference to the, the story that's, that's being told. No, I think about every play, whether it's in Rogue One, I, I can't think, other than Coruscant itself, which was supposed to be a high civilization, but it looked mighty ugly to me, uh, I can't think of a place that isn't uh, broken, devastated, isolated, uh, hand-to-mouth, uh, everyone out for himself. Uh, <laughs> you know, and, and so uh, that may not be dwelt upon visually and kids watching it probably don't pick up on that so much but you, you read philosophy you study philosophy or you, you're whether you're an academic person or not you you watch this as an adult and you it, yes norm it's escapism yes i get it <laughs> but if it's worth anything it's because it brings these other things up and because there is a canon and because there are all these animated series and books and and so on there's a, an attempt at a structural world building that does that has inevitably consequences if you're bothered to think about the story. Yeah, and like in Solo, I mean, how Solo starts out as a, a slave, you know, like, yeah. I mean, there's so, yeah, that how you think of, like you said, if you think about it philosophically, if you, if you were living in this galaxy, you know, and, and you think about your current status in life, your so socioeconomic status or whatever, what would you be doing in this galaxy? It would be highly dependent on what planet you were born on and, and what all these things are. But there's a good chance you'd be much worse off than you are in your regular everyday life that you're living now. You know, Absolutely. The, the chance of you being a Jedi or being a, a politician <laughs> or, I mean, even if you're a politician or a general, you think about what these guys are, are facing on a daily basis. Nobody is living some glamorous life in this in this universe. It's not it's not something no. that's happening. Nobody is, and 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 to me, there there's another really grim. It, it occurred to me last night when the last episode, or the most recent episode that I watched, was called "The Gunslinger." Well, you know, I love. <laughs> how could I have grown up in the '60s and not? Uh, Stephen King had his, his marvelous book series about the same kind of character and but what that emphasized to me more than anything was and we're back at Moss Eisley so we're going back to Tatooine again those kind of things life means very little in the Star Wars universe the the person who's the mechanic what she wants to repair Pelly I think her name is wants to it's going to repair his ship in Bay Thirty Five, and uh, of Moss Eisley and he doesn't want any droids. Well, it's a it's a it's a world of extreme prejudice, too. Uh, partly there's a, this implication that people have real trouble with droids, and there's a whole thing we can go into with that, but here's a a, a woman who when she sees Yoda. Baby Yoda, who's not Yoda, come come out of the ship. 
she picks him up, she accommodates him a little bit and says, ah, this is a way for me to make more money from this guy. It's not that she particularly cares about this creature. Maybe she, uh, a little bit eventually, but no, he's really a means to an end. And, and then when the gunslinger himself, the guy who wanted to join the guild and he's, and he's sets Mando up and, and Mando wins, of course, after being bruised and battered, uh, the, the guy's body's on the ground. And so Pele, the mechanic, uh, says to the droids, oh, go toss him out wherever it happens to be. There's, there's absolutely no respect for the human body uh, or the, the species body, whatever it is. There, there, some people may say, yeah, but he was a gunslinger and he was a bad guy. I don't care. What really bothers me is the lack of any particular concern for the fallen and how they fell and what they are. And this is where the story doesn't have, because of its nature as a spaghetti western, refuses on on principle and by choice to examine those complexities. Yeah, and Star Wars has always been that way, right? There's always been stormtroopers that are just getting mowed down, TIE fighters that have been spinning off to space and and exploding, you know, hitting something. And, you know, even when you think about it, like the most impactful deaths in the stories, you know, Darth Vader after he's been redeemed or Obi-Wan Kenobi or Yoda or things, you've only known these characters for maybe a grand total of 30 minutes of screen time or something before they disappear you know there's not a really there isn't that that sort of uh, hard-hitting emotional connection that you see with some other shows and i think that that does take away the value of of life like you were saying Um, but especially even more so even more so in the mandalorian or spaghetti western you know there's there's so many henchmen that are just you know it's you know they're your body count body count on a schwarzenegarian schwarzenegger (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> level <laughs> plateau uh, but yeah and then I you know I said this about the, the body you know I'm thinking rapidly through the films well let's see Luke Skywalker with C-3PO uh, is burning the bodies of the Jawas who are destroyed way back in the first film there is a pyre for Qui-Gon well he's a Jedi um, so Luke is showing some basic uh, hygienic, if not culturally theological impulse. He's a kid in that first movie, and he's and he's helping uh, take care of these bodies. But yeah, for the most part, I don't see that that happening in the films. So ethically, how does Mandalorian culture reconcile its values with a profession like bounty hunting? Do you think? <laughs> Well, it, it's, uh, having looked up the Mandalorian code, because you're giving bits and pieces, given bits and pieces of it, of course, as, as we go, it's almost Nietzschean. Strength is life, for the strong have the right to rule. Well, that's really interesting, because I see Darth Vader was strong. <laughs> it argue, what do you mean by strong is, is one, one first wants to ask. Is strong the, the stoic nature of being able to survive anything that life tosses at you? 
of honor is life, for with no honor one may as well be dead. Well, Mandalorian sold Baby Yoda in the second, third episode uh, to this vile fellow whose name I don't remember, but I'm sure he's going to come back sooner or later. And there's this whole thing about this Baby Yoda character going on that I'm going to be more and more involved with, obviously. But but he took payment. He sold this creature. He walked away. And, and he did finally go back to rescue the child out of some kind of guilt, out of some kind of re-examining of perhaps his, his code. But he didn't give his armor back that was made of the Beskar, right? He, 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 he took the money and ran. But then he went back and got... So he's essentially a pirate. <laughs> and so honor, there's no... I mean, there's no honor in the, in the breaking of the capitalistic deal, but there's a great deal of honor in rescuing the child. So there's very complicated things going on there, potentially. Death is life. One should die as they have lived. Well, that's really interesting, too. Uh, but uh, I don't, I, I don't know yet how that plays out for these characters. Right. I think that we see the Mandalorian army, well, or the clan, suddenly emerge like a, a hive of, of hornets when he's in trouble in the second or third uh, second episode, I guess. No third episode i think and and he's done this deed he's taken the child back the mandalorians do not abandon him he made some kind of peace because this is the way <laughs> with with that the bigger mandalorian uh, the military guy who salutes him in a captain america way as he's flying away from the planet as the battle is still going on um, so they're, they're goofy things, but but I think the code is potentially interesting. Yeah. So, do you think that there is a a conflict between uh, the Mandalorian code and bounty hunting, or do you think it's something that that they can they can coexist? Well, I think the Mandalorian is trying to show that they can. He's he's exploring the possibility that they can coexist. But then again, he wasn't a complete Mandalorian from birth either. So he's he's he he's obviously going back in memory over and over again to various events, uh, uh, devastating events, and that causes him to change. I think what the code means. That's how I'm seeing this develop. Yeah, it raises a lot of interesting philosophical questions because of the um, general nature of the code. All right, well, you know, strength, you know, might makes right, and you know, honor. Honor is, is important. Well, I think that the real questions it raises is, does this apply on a cultural or on an individual level? And I think that that's where some of, some of the things that happen in The Mandalorian get sort of contradictory, right? Because you think about honor. Um, yes. And so you could very well say, you know, selling baby Yoda to the Imperials, you know, well, you know, his capture and, and sale could be honorable if you were looking at it on, on an idealistic level. Okay, well, if you believe in what their cause is, then you did a very um, impressive, honorable thing. But on an individual level, okay, you sold an infant, you know, a, a powerless infant to somebody who intends to do a great harm. Well, there's, like you said, there's nothing honorable about that at all. Well, you know, might, I think might makes right. Okay, well, you know, you have in, 
an individual Mandalorian might be able to overpower any other type of soldier in the galaxy, but they make several references to their homeworld being shattered and then being scattered to the wind. Mm-hmm. So on a cultural level, you're, you're very weak. You don't have any overarching, you know, nothing to hold you together, you know? So that's where the code gets kind of interesting. Well, I think he's re-examining the, the, the code of necessity because bounty hunters aren't supposed to have, you do the, you do the deal and you're done. And clearly, this show is being made in an environment in which we, <laughs> in which some socio-political elements believe that the deal is the whole thing. So I think it's very obviously examining that. What does this deal really mean? What are the repercussions of the deal? That's where the Mandalorian is going. Uh, for me, that makes it worth keep watching. It was just yep. Sold them. Yep, did that. Look at me. No, I'm not going to look at you. <laughs> I'm going to leave you alone. Uh, but you know, when people and he's polite. And that's the thing that I that I think whether Disney has done that or whatever it happens to be. So he's got that 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 thing when he goes into the, the farming the swamp town and then he's going to help them out in the. And the native woman is is uh, trying to see to here's food and so on. He's thank you and can her daughter play with the baby and sure and then and then he's he's releasing some control. He's releasing some agency to the baby whatever. The, I hope they give it a name soon. Do they give it a name yet? Yeah, is it still yeah. baby. Okay, what's its name? Grogu. Grogu. That's very. <laughs> That's Jack Kirby from the 1950s uh, via George Lucas's inevitable coinage. Okay, Grogu. I like that better than Baby Yoda. So Grogu, even though we don't know it yet, comes off the ship even though he told him to stay there. And he doesn't fight that. So he is not in so into his macho ethic that he... Uh, insists on always being in control no matter what. When he's with this gunslinger, he's, he's acting as if he wants to teach the kid something. He's going to make all the money. He already said, I'll do the job for you. I'll get the money. You get to get into the guild. Okay, so there's a, there's a mercenary, uh, understandable nature there. But he exhibits some kind of trust Okay, I'll go off and get the do back. You stay here with this this terrible ninja, Mar- Mar- the Greek assassin character, and that's when the gunslinger turns against him because he's easily manipulated by this ninja this character, a worse mercenary. But he still rides that do back back into town. He 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 doesn't he doesn't relent, but he also gave the person a chance to do the right thing, and I think that's interesting. Yeah, so that leads into the next question, which would be, you know, you bring up that sort of stuff, and then, you know, we talk about how, um, you know, this the story of the Mandalorian is this guy who can't help but make best friends around the universe. Is is the Mandalorian, is he a hero or an anti-hero? <laughs> well, I, I think he's, to me, he's very clearly an, an, an anti-hero, a reluctant hero at best. Uh, 
he's because he's he's not aligning completely to heroic principles. He's going to be a bounty hunter. And maybe maybe that changes. Maybe it becomes less and less the bounty hunter. I don't know. But in the first five episodes, he is a bounty hunter who has every other bounty hunter essentially after him. And the more he gets away, the more they're coming after him. And so it's an inevitable cascade. So he's heroic in rethinking what this is supposed to be about. That I'll give him. Uh, but... But the fact that he can go around to you know he he disintegrates a bunch of Jawas he he he's it's you know it doesn't seem to bother him too much to pull out that disintegrating tri tri it's essentially Aquaman's weapon trident but it's I forget the name of the thing anyway when it gets really bad he stops using the flamethrower and he starts to, to blast but but he kills in a variety of ways. Uh, you know, he roasts people alive with that flamethrower. That's not a heroic thing to do. Is he preserving his own life? Yes. Is he trying to preserve the, the baby? Yes. But uh, I don't necessarily see him going through any paroxysms of why he's doing what he's doing. So to me, he's not a complete hero. And that raises some interesting questions about what, what the difference between a, a hero and an anti-hero is. And I'm sure that we'll do an episode on anti-heroes at some point. Yeah. But yeah, I, you know, it's, I think that he is closer to a hero. He's, he's a lot easier to view as a hero than Clint Eastwood, right? The, like, oh, absolutely. That he's influenced by. Because, absolutely. you know, Eastwood is very clearly an anti-hero you know, where whereby a lot of the good that he does is just coinciding with the his personal goals, you know, or he's going just slightly out of his way to do the right thing, but he's mostly traveling on one path. Whereas the Mandalorian, um, I think that his initial intentions are very anti-heroish. You know, they're not they're not aligning with with good. But then it seems like any time he's presented with a moral conundrum, he always does the right thing. Yeah, and I and that makes and that it makes it does. yeah yeah it's so it, he's you know as for a, a TV serial that's based on a western, he's he's a pretty complex character in terms of trying to figure out how you classify him as a literary um, as a literary device. Yeah. So I'll tell, you, I'll tell you what, I'm going to chime in on just that just for a moment, because you just brought something into my head. <clears throat> this is one of those background visuals, and I'm not sure what the director intended, but here's when he's on when he's on uh, Tatooine. And he walks past a set of pikes that have the heads of stormtroopers on. He stops. And he considers those heads on pikes. It's not just a toss away, oh, that's head in the background, isn't that garish grotesque? No, he stops and looks at them. That to me had the potential, uh, that, that's the complicating, that was a complicating moment and they, and they did well with that moment. Is he, is he hating the stormtroopers because of what they have done, perhaps? Is he, is he totally put off by the the violence that continues? That that once the empire is done, 
the same kind of violence keeps happening. I think that that's what that scene suggests, that, that it's dredging up a bigger picture of what humanity is or is not, uh, all, in, all in that one little shot. Right. And the mask complicates that, right? If you had any kind of facial cues, you could probably draw some pretty, um, you know, pretty easily draw some inferences about what he's thinking. But that mask just makes you think, what is, what is he thinking? What, what's going on there? You know, Mm -hmm. and you have to sort of infer it based off of the actions that he takes throughout, you know, what you know about how he acts versus the normal visual cues you'd get, you know, watching somebody. Yeah. So let's talk about some of the characters a little bit. What does our knowledge of artificial intelligence um, do, do you think our knowledge of artificial intelligence corroborates the story of IG-11? And what, so what I mean by that is I'll kind of explain it. You got this assassin droid um, and the Mandalorian, you know, after he saves baby Yoda, he, they have a, uh, an Ugnaught that ends up reprogramming this droid to take care of baby Yoda. And the Mandalorian never trusts him, right? He always says this thing was was designed to to kill things, and now we're we're having it do the opposite. We're having it act maternally towards um, towards Baby Yoda. What do you do? You think what we know about artificial intelligence, right? You start with seeding. You give it some some ideas, some thoughts, and then you let it start forming some of its own. Um, assumptions and conclusions and things, and it learns. It learns stuff. Mm-hmm. Do you think that if you had an artificial intelligence that you seeded some things with and it learned things, you were to shut it off and then try start it up again and try to reprogram it to do something different? Do you think that's a possibility? I do. And I've actually given this some thought, which is why I can answer that so quickly. First, we were thinking about this in some sense with Hal, the computer in 2001, but even before that, if it's intelligence that has to do with consciousness, if it's consciousness, it can take different shapes depending on devastating events. So it's not hard. I mean, it's hard to, to think of in the sense of an, in an emotional sense for the people who have gone through this but a person who goes into a coma and emerges and has a different personality or a person who has a devastating accident and has a different personality or different aspects of the personality are in the ascendant or someone who undergoes the the devastations of dementia in some way and their personalities change we know this happens in the human, so of course it's going to happen in artificial intelligence as far as I'm concerned. There's, and, and what's so interesting about it is the way you just described the IG character is not so very different than the Mandalorian or, or other bounty hunters. These are essentially organic machines who are programmed, trained to go out and kill in order to accomplish a monetary gain. Now, what an artificially intelligent droid needs with capital (laughs) is a really interesting problem to me because they don't 
they haven't done anything with that yet in any of the movies that I've seen, maybe to enhance themselves more. Well, how is that any different than the Mandalorian getting better armor? It's going back to the video game thing. Go to the shop, get better weapons, get better armor, get health points, go back out there. Well, I, I don't see any real difference between the two. So yeah, the Mandalorian has every reason, I would guess, not having gotten that far with the storyline yet to, to question this, because I, I, I doubt your maternal instincts when you've been a killer. Well, don't I doubt the Mandalorian's <laughs> paternal and maternal instincts when he's been a killer? Absolutely. Yeah, I, it's very complicated to me, and we don't know how artificial intelligence works in the Star Wars universe, so we have to say that. But yeah. To me, I think the question comes down to that initial programming, the initial seeding, and how much um, a memory wipe actually clears out, right? So, you know, because I, I think that, you know, with some, you you know, you couldn't clear out everything. Because if you cleared out everything, then the machine just wouldn't run. You'd have the blue screen of death, right? So there has to be some programming that continues to exist. But with an art with an artificial intelligence, a droid that was made to assassinate, made to, to do these things, what were the initial seeds that were put in? How many of them were there? You know, what, what sort of rules did it set for what to kill, what to, you know? Yeah. And then, yeah, yeah. So I think that, you know, with humans, it's very complex, the nature versus nurture argument, right? Because we have genetics which are kind of our source coding right those are our that's our seeding indeed um but those things are very generally based towards survival and growth whereas nurture um humans have this nurture experience um and then like you said it can be wiped through various biological processes you know dementia or you know head trauma or those sorts of things um but when the Mandalorian decides to become paternal, his nurture, um, you know, he, he still has all of that. So he's looking back and he's, he's reflecting on his experience as an orphan or, you know, his parents dying or the characters, yeah. the characters that sort of took care of him when he was younger. And how that plays into his relationship with Grogu is one thing. The ID droid, though, is a little bit different because you're wondering, well, what what is his DNA? What is his source coding? What things is he built with that he cannot um undo and then through for the through the nurture um you know if he has those things and then you start nurturing you know if you put him on this completely different path or your source coding says here's all of your rules for killing and doing these sorts of things and there are no rules for being a, a parent for you know being taking care of a, a young one so you're learning all these things can it learn them, but it just has to go through a much more circuitous route because it's not designed for it? Or is it something that it wouldn't ever really be able to do? It would, And as we, we do find out later, that it maintains its skill for killing. And so when it learns, when it does start killing again, how do those, how does its seeding um, conflict with its new learning? You know, it's, it, there's a number of... Uh, Fascinating yeah, questions about the IG droid. Um, right. And the IG droid in, in in the original Star Wars Legends, the stories from like 30 years ago, was interesting too. The, the droids were originally designed as they're they're slaves pretty much. So you could you could buy one of these droids, it would go out and bounty hunt for you and give you all the money. 
And that's what they did. And they were all built on this one planet. And then IG-88, one of, one of these droids, suddenly became self-aware on the assembly line. There you are. And it, it, killed, all of, <laughs> it killed all of the humans on the planet. But he, and he became a bounty hunter for his own ends. But that raises the question that you said. Why, why would a bounty hunter need a bounty hunting droid need to have ends? He doesn't need to eat. He doesn't need to... Well, what does he, he need? Maintenance. He needs maintenance. Right. He needs fuel. Yeah, yeah. He needs a ship and all those things. Uh, but the fact of... When we talk about conceptually artificial intelligence, if we remove the artificial for a moment, we still got the idea of intelligence. How does intelligence grow? Intelligence grows through circuitous, circuitous, circuitous paths of experience, learning, finding out new things, which when you find them out, might change. Imagine an artificially intelligent, and this is, this is how many different science fiction scenarios, but an artificially intelligent, an artificial intelligence is set the goal of preserving Earth or preserving life on Earth. Sooner or later, that artificial intelligence is going to be encountering every aspect of human history that has been recorded and will have to question itself, is this species worth preserving? Preserving can mean many things. I will break it down into its essence, essential DNA, put it in cryogenic freeze, and maybe I will be able to figure out how to train it not to be violent and then let it reemerge thousands upon thousands of years later. There are all kinds of possibilities because what, what happens when a child finds out something about its parents? Inevitably, all of us as parents fall down really quickly in the eyes of our children once they become they realize that we aren't the be-all, end-all. That happens really fast, in my experience. And it doesn't mean that they don't love us. It just means that they realize, oh, well, I can push back on this because this is not the way. <laughs> this is right. not. And... And I can't imagine any artificial intelligence worth its salt not doing that, especially when it realizes that it's not equal. It's more than equal to all of us in combination in its, in, in its prowess. So then what does it absorb that might be human enough to mitigate its prowess? And, and it sounds to me that that's what's going on with this droid story. Yeah. yeah. And so... You know, we're, now we're getting into some of these questions of kind of utilitarianism, right? What is what is the goal of, of the droid and stuff? And that leads into an interesting question too about um, about Grogu, Baby Yoda, right? So, do you believe that that the Mandalorian did the right thing by rescuing Grogu, right? So let's <laughs> let's you haven't you haven't gotten here yet, so it'll be pretty easy to um, it'll be pretty easy to. For, to not include this part, but we're going to, let's say we don't know what the end is. So we're, we're stepping into the Mandalorian's shoes, right? Yeah. You have baby Yoda. He rescues him. At what point do you think there's some ethical concerns about what he's doing? And they raise this later on. They say, listen, this is one of the most force sensitive um, creatures in the galaxy. And the way that you're raising him and the killing that he's seeing and stuff you're 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 giving him a bad influence. You're going to turn him to the dark side. He's going to be bad. Or, okay. um, 
all, all of these, think about all of the implications of it. And, you know, should, what would have been the correct ethical thing to do? Should it have been to save him and then immediately put him into hiding somewhere rather than exposing him to the things that he did? Or was it what the actions that he took to try to um, you reunite him with his own kind? What what do you think the correct ethical decision for the Mandalorian was from, from the beginning? Well, wow. <laughs> okay, going on what I have seen, I have to, I have a lot of questions. One, was the Mandalorian even aware that Yoda existed? One of the greatest Jedi Knights in the history of the Jedi? One would assume uh, that the Mandalorians were aware of that character through all of the destruction of the Republic going into the Empire. So, would he assume that Yoda had been killed? If Yoda went into hiding and he did on Bespin, would it even been possible to find out that he was there? Or was he so well hidden that he, that he wouldn't? Because it seems to me that would... Not Bespin, sorry. Um, Dagobah. Dagobah. <sighs> See, I'm not a fanboy. Just, <laughs> but could he have taken him to Yoda? Well, no, because Yoda died. Would he have known that? Okay, well, then there's Obi-Wan Kenobi. He's on flipping Tatooine, not all that far from Moss Eisley. Would it have been possible to think that there might be a, a Jedi there? Would he even have taken him to a Jedi anyway? <laughs> the storyline so far makes it clear that he can't put him in a safe, secluded place because there are too many bounty hunters that are going to find him no matter what. So I think the storylines thus far for me is tipping toward what is he supposed to do? Every time he, he, he takes him somewhere, somebody realizes that he's an unusual creature at the very least and is therefore going to want him because that's the nature of this dark capitalism that's going on. So I, I think he doesn't. I think I probably projecting into the character, what am I going to do? Who, who am I going to take him to that is going to put him at risk anyway? It's, a, it's an entirely risky universe from the, from the get-go. Uh, second, he does realize that he has some power. He sees what he's doing. He sees some of the things that, that he does. And even having seen that, he's still willing to leave him with a bunch of children in a very uh, kind community. Uh, but then along comes one of those awful bounty hunters. Notice they're the bad bounty hunters, not... <laughs> Because from this point of view, it looks to me like all bounty hunters are bad, except for the Man Mandalorian. We've, we've sort of set that up. When he when he is fighting every bounty hunter on that, that the, I forget the name of the planet, but <laughs> and then the Mandalorians come out to help him, his fellow Mandalorian. I think we've pretty much set up there is no such thing as a good bounty hunter anymore. Just a bounty hunter is trying not to be a bounty hunter and is dealing with the sins of it. The very fact that the word, the, the sin was the title of that episode where he was selling uh, was it Gregor? Not Gregor. Grogu. Uh, that, and to call that a sin is is very judgmental in its in its first in the storytelling structure itself. So gee, if you've committed that as a sin, then you're going to have to repent, aren't you? <laughs> and so you live with the, yeah. so I don't know what to do with that yeah so well 
what um we talked about it earlier there's the lack of value for for life right how much life did it cost to save grogu's life how many people ended up you know think about all the people that end up getting killed because he didn't just hand the child over um oh yeah but how many people are going to get killed because of the what what if this villainous former imperial <laughs> yeah, is going to do to experiment pull that information out clearly he wants something to do with the force clearly he wants to to have that that capacity therefore clearly we can blow up planets so <laughs> i think the the the, the moral math if the mandalorian is doing any of it and he knows any of the background and he clearly knows what's going on in this post-imperial universe. He's finding it out. Uh, <clears throat> no, you don't want that kind of power in the hands of people who don't think moralistically. So, if if all the Imperials were after is Grogu's blood, and they got it when the Mandalorian sold him to him, now, and now the Mandalorian has Grogu. The, the Imperials already have what they want, right? But others are trying to get him now. Um, is there value to continuing to hold on to him? I don't know, because to me, that uh, either because I was tired or because I'm being dense. Uh, excuse me, that's not entirely clear to me, that, that it was just his blood. They had him on that table, the Mandalorian looked into the room. He, he didn't kill the scientist who, who was claiming that he was keeping the the child alive, they already would have killed him by that point, so it's not just a matter of extracting blood. Uh, yeah, th- is maybe it? that's something they talk about later, or maybe I'm confused. I, I've watched them all a, a while back, so <laughs> I'm trying yeah. to think back to them, but yeah, this, so there's some different questions. Let, let's end by asking, why, why do you think Grogu became so popular? What is it about him that, that appealed to, to audiences? Well, <laughs> I can speak of this firsthand because I have a granddaughter who's two and knows nothing about the Mandalorian, but has two baby Yoda figures in her in her life, <laughs> and likes to talk to baby Yoda. So sweet, so soft, so cute. <laughs> you know, I mean, this is this is clearly the selling point. This is where the memes went and the cartoons and everything. I, when when some of my acquaintances started talking about Baby Yoda, I didn't have a clue what they were talking about. There were baby Muppets, there were baby superheroes. I thought, oh, we've got to do this to Yoda now too. But and then when I be, when it very quickly became aware of what was going on. Um, yeah, what do they say? Anybody who encounters him, aw. What, what, what is the text if you put on the closed captions? He coos, he giggles. He's, you know, what? he's just so cute, except when he concentrates and lifts up his, his uh, hand, such as it is, and, and raises big old mud horns into the air so that they can gallop in, in one place. Or when he is investigating technology. There are hints that there's a lot more to this character, but to me, up through episode five, ah, he's, he's just, he's a cute little one with a whole lot of potential as a super being. So speaking of, a, 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 of aesthetics, what is it that, that makes him cute? I've, 
You got your big eyes. Big eyes we know are, are cute, but other than that, he's got green skin and, and long ears and oh. and all this other stuff that you wouldn't think of being as being classically something that is attractive. Oh, long Why? ears, a soft doggy, a great big doggy, a golden retriever. What dog with big ears don't people like to pull on and tug on and go, oh, he's such a cute dog. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Yeah, yeah, I guess if you're looking at this as a pet, I'm thinking more... As a, as a sentient being, uh, green skin yes. and long ears makes me think of like an orc or something, you know. Uh, but but these people are aware of whatever species Shoda is. I've forgotten the name of his species, to be honest. I don't think they name it. Okay, then I didn't forget it. I just never knew it. But, but uh, he's... And even in the movies with Yoda, I remember being in the theater when people were going... Uh, when they saw Yoda at first, and he was, he was pretending to be this just wizened old uh, recluse uh, banging on this droid with a stick. And, oh, wasn't that funny, this this old creature that didn't have anything, just being goofy and talking funny. Because, of course, Yoda talking in his inverted way, oh, well, that's always, whenever anybody talks funny, that's the human thing, right? I mean, they, these are not nice things about human beings we're talking about. A sentient life form being just cute. Well, if you ever watch Galaxy Quest, you learn something from that. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's, but that, but it's, it's reductive. It's reductive to all the, the, the prejudices that we have. I hope they're going, they're doing something with that. It sounds to me like they are when they're making him more and more formidable or at least uh, complicated as a character. But at the get go, he doesn't speak. He gurgles. He coos. Okay. He's got nice soft ears. Everybody tugs on. Yeah, he's green. So what? Uh, animals are all, all, all colors. At least maybe they're not prejudiced about that in the Star Wars universe. But yeah, the big eyes, the, the cloak up to his neck. He looks like a doll. <laughs> and is one. <laughs> so, do you, where do you think the Mandalorian show would go without Grogu. Oh, well, I, I I think the Mandalorian would continue on his path of doing things without a whole lot of question. You have, I think it's inevitable that in any storyline you have to encounter that which is going to challenge your own perceptions. It, it would have to be somewhat. Maybe it would be the, but he wouldn't have ever gotten to that planet, that farming planet, to meet that woman who wanted him to stay. She was offering him another life, and he said, yeah, that looks nice. All right. And he was actually thinking about it just a little bit. Well, he's never encountered that before. He's, he's just walking through, doing the things that his stoic people do uh, until something challenges that. And, and so whether it was uh, Grogu or it would have to be some other sentient being. Right, or, you know... I I guess it's possible he gets set on a path through his experiences here that that cause him a chain of events that cause him to reform his his life. I suppose you know. Yeah. 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 I don't know. I don't know that he can go back to to being who or what he was before before Grogu showed up. But. I, I I hope not. I don't think that he's going to. But but then again, maybe he could. Just like maybe IG can go back to being a killer android even after it's encountered caretaking <laughs> yeah interesting questions and we'll see if we get answers to them in the future 
All right. Uh, until next time, keep pondering.